This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. That's what uh, CVS Health thinks. Uh, they put out a $67.5 billion takeover of, te- of Aetna. Uh, not a surprise. We've been talking about it for the last week, but it will test the Trump administration's approach to far-reaching corporate takeovers. Uh, let's get more on this story, what it means for the industry, what it means for M&A in general. Zach Tracer is healthcare reporter here at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City, right next to me, along with uh, Eric Gordon, professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Uh, Eric joining us on the phone from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Zach, let me start with you. So we have been kind of kicking around this story uh, and this expected deal. Um, so... What will it do, though, to the healthcare industry and the insurance industry? I think we're about to see a very different kind of healthcare company. You're taking Aetna, which is a really big health insurer. Uh, you're combining it with CVS, which is the biggest drugstore chain. They have something like 10,000 drugstores and some minute clinics as well. Um, and you're mashing them together, and you're going to see, okay, is this a better way of making people healthy and providing care to people? That's it's like one-stop yep. shopping a little bit. That's what they're promising. They're, they're saying, you know, you can go to a CVS store, you get your bread, get your checkup, um, pick up your pills, um, and that'll be, you know, a real benefit for patients. But no one's built this before, so it, it really remains to be seen whether it can be um, done successfully. And buy some candy bars on the side, which will mean you'll need more health care <laughs> and more drugs. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Corey, all yours. <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't get it. I mean, I... I is it, it's a bolt-on, or are there efficiencies here if the two things are run together? And if there are efficiencies here, it's a little bit – it's almost scandalous, right? I mean, if they weren't able to negotiate better drug prices, if they if they think they can de- deny more – like, I don't, I don't know if they can put people in more generics and not – you know, like, how does this play out? I think that's a really good question, a really good point. Uh, the companies have said – Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, the companies have said that you know synergies from these deals are going to be relatively small, $750 million on a $67.5 billion deal. So small synergies. Um, and they're making this long-term bet. And it's you're right. It's it's sort of nebulous. It's it's a little vague how all this is going to come together and, you know, lower health care costs or deliver better care or, you know, whatever the promise is. Eric Gordon, I want to bring you in. Professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan on the phone from Ann Arbor. Um, you know I like to do this to you, Professor Gordon, but I'm thinking you're teaching a class, you're talking about M&A environment, you're talking about this deal. What do you tell the students? What do you say? Yeah, I'm telling them that uh, it is it is hard to figure this deal out in one sense. I mean, is Aetna not big enough to negotiate what it needs to negotiate? Yeah. Is CVS not big enough to negotiate? So- Are neither of them or both of them not smart enough to figure out how to get together and partner? In fact, they already have been working together. And when you look across healthcare, there are all kinds of alliances and deals to try to integrate the delivery of healthcare, to try to take costs out. Um, So do do you have to merge to do it? In fact, a a J.P. Morgan analyst, Lisa Gill, asked this question uh, a month ago on November 6th. She put out a note saying she questions why they don't just do a partnership instead of uh, thinking about an acquisition. Uh, Zach, why don't they? Well, as as you all have pointed out, they they are already partnering. And I think they're 
are some sort of longer term investments that they want to make together where it's going to be really hard to tell are these investments going to pay off. But if they do, those benefits will accrue not to Aetna, not to CVS, but to this new combined company. Um, and so they are they're making this, you know, somewhat bold bet here on, um, you know, really revamping the way people get care. Zach, does this deal get done? Is there, do we have to be any concerns about regula- regulatory concerns in Washington or not necessarily? The companies are saying they expect it to close in the second half of next year. Um, some of the folks that we've talked to are saying, you know, that might be a bit of an ambitious timeline, you know, given the, the antitrust scrutiny that this deal might get. You know, we saw the government moving to block AT&T, uh, Time Warner, and, you know, there may be some similar concerns here, um, though it, it really does remain to be seen. Um, is, is Okay, so Eric, let me ask you, what, what is the rationale here, at least the stated rationale, um, that they could some they could that, that Aetna could somehow get a better price out of CVS or that the profits will remain in house. You know what they're saying is the politically correct stuff. I mean, no companies merge by saying, "Wow, you know, this is just gonna we're gonna we're gonna get more power. We're gonna be able to raise prices." They they always talk about the big benefits to consumers. If you look at what the CEOs of both companies were saying months ago, prior to you know knowing that they were gonna merge, they were both saying something similar. They both want to integrate more vertically. Uh, CVS wants to be more involved in our health care. They want to expand the minute clinics. They want to have nutrition clinics. They want us to come to CVS for more of our health care spend. The Aetna CEO, uh, um, Mark Bertolini, was saying something similar, that he wants Aetna to not just be paying for this stuff, but having a, a, a bigger role in actually providing health. Although, just last month, he said he didn't want to build and own a brick-and-mortar Aetna store network, um, which I guess he's now sort of getting into kind of backwards. What does Bertolini care? I mean, what right? If he walks, if he can walk away with almost ninety million dollars if he's terminated after CVS buys the company, I mean, Zach, this is a lot of money. Oh yeah, um, you know the the companies have said that you know Edna is going to be run as a standalone business within CVS once this deal is completed. Though Bertolini is not the the guy who's going to be running it. He's going to join the board. He is going to join the board. He's going to join the board. So he's going to stay with it. Um, Quick question, um, Eric, do you foresee that there's any other combinations that have to happen as a result of this deal? Might we see more? Just got about 20 seconds here. Yes, I, yeah, you know, I think the other big insurers who, who couldn't merge with each other last year are going to be looking to also vertically integrate. Um, be interesting to see what happens to Walgreens. It yeah. and Walmart are the only other big drugstore things, and you can't buy Walmart. <laughs> Zach, save 20 seconds for you. What about you? What are you hearing? Will we see other consolidation as a result of this? I think Eric's right. Keep an eye on the other big insurers. Keep an eye on Walmart and Walgreens um, and um, you know, kind of see where this goes. Fascinating. Not a quiet Monday. Uh, Zach Tracer, thank you very much. Healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Check out his uh, work at Twitter at ZTracer, also at Bloomberg.com. And Eric Gordner, thanks to you. Professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan on the phone in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Might start with uh, America, but Facebook Messenger and Facebook itself looking at children under the age of 13 and trying to come up with a way to get them involved in that platform. Uh, joining us right now to discuss it, Garrett Van Wink, uh, De Van Wink, uh, our Bloomberg News tech reporter, joining us right now uh, with a look at, at what Facebook's doing here. And, and Garrett, talk to me about uh, how uh, how Facebook's trying to do this because they've they've specifically 
tried to avoid this in their user agreements uh, in the past. Yeah, so Facebook and most social media apps have sort of been off off limits to uh, most kids under 13. You know, before that, it was people even older. What they've done now is they've sort of provided a new app that parents can download for their kids' devices. I'm sure, you know, those of us who are parents know that a lot of kids are using iPhones, iPads well before the age of 13. And so the parent downloads it. They can choose, you know, what contacts the kid can sort of send a message to, do a video chat with, et cetera, et cetera, and sort of have that much more control. But, you know, obviously the effect of this now is that it's uh, a way for a whole new group of people who, you know, maybe haven't been using Facebook apps before to start using them even earlier. This is, you know, coming at a time when Facebook, although still very dominant, is facing, you know, a competition from Snap for those younger users. Garrett. Garrett, no ads, no news content, nothing but messaging. No ads, uh, everything you know, all these sort of certificates out there to make sure that it's kid-friendly. You know, they're starting very carefully to make sure that they don't have any backlash about any of those. This is just about bringing younger, a younger generation into the Facebook fold, so hopefully they stay with them forever. Yeah, I mean, from Facebook's perspective, it's a way to uh, help parents communicate with their kids and, you know, kids who might not have a phone number to be able to text their parents when they're in trouble, that kind of thing. But, of course, the effect will be that, you know, hopefully from Facebook's perspective, they will have a lot more kids using their, their platform into the future. Um, Garrett, it also seems that, that some, in some ways Snapchat looms here. I mean, Snapchat's been so successful at going after um, kids, you know, people under the age of 18, and, and, and they talk about that. But it's interesting to me because the, the big measurement firms don't, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the comm scores and such, don't tend to measure uh, users under the age of 18. So it's not so valuable to advertisers who want to say we got a measurement of, of people mm-hmm. like this. Nonetheless, uh, the competition from Snapbook has insp- Snapchat has inspired uh, uh, Facebook stories and Instagram stories. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Snapchat was sort of came out with these very kind of innovative products that were very exciting for for, for teenagers, young people, for millennials, people in their twenties. Um, sort of, you know, kind of funner, sillier way to use social media than you know Facebook initially was. Facebook, of course, now especially through Instagram, has kind of copied a lot of those things, and and it's been tough for Snapchat to kind of stand up under that. But they still have a, a strong user base, and kids are using Snapchat and other apps that you know we might not, you know, we don't necessarily throw around the names a lot. But every day you sort of see something new come up that young kids are sort of jumping onto. They're always the first to adopt these new trends. Like and musically. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, well, that one's old. What are you talking about? It's TBH now. Uh, oh, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> what perhaps. is it? What's TBH? So but Facebook bought this app called TBH, which is essentially just sort of this fun way to compliment your friends at school. Um, I, I have to admit I'm not a major user of it. And it's a teen compliment app. Are yeah, you kidding it's very me? friendly. Yeah, it's, it's sort of against cyberbullying. But exactly. I mean, that, that's sort of what's going on here, right? I mean, there's this battle for younger and younger kids because they are the f- consumers of the, of the future, and they also use these digital services in much more sort of in-depth ways than, than older people do. I think they've also figured out how to profit from things that don't have obvious revenue models. That, you know, if you look at WhatsApp with its, you know, over a billion users, no ads whatsoever, but I think that they use the data that a user uh, generates and the in the the um, intent that users show through their private messages to kind of figure out what kind of ads to serve them when they are on Facebook. Yeah, there's. I'm not sure exactly what how that's going to work, but it, but of course, I mean, 
uh, my understanding of Facebook Messenger is still sort of encrypted. Of you know, Facebook is not reading your messages and trying to figure out, you know, what you like and then sending you ads in the same way. Sort of, uh, you know, your activity on Facebook's more public platforms are. But of course, I mean, this is all data that they're collecting. Even things for you know being able to know that you know, okay, you have a Facebook uh, profile and you created you know, an app, uh, you sort of downloaded the this child app, it must mean that you're a parent and then they can sell you parent right. things. TBH asks, you could do these anonymous polls. Who has the best smile? Who makes you laugh the hardest? I encourage our users to uh, comment about Caroline as much as possible on Twitter, <laughs> please. I don't read the good, I don't read, no, I do read the good, I do read the bad, I take it all in. Um, fascinating, but yeah, I guess if, if Facebook wants to keep the growth going, uh, Garrett, they've got to, Think about yep. right ways to bring in and, and pump up um, those two billion monthly active users. Still, right? still five billion to go to seven billion, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, good story. Good uh, to check in with you, Garrett uh, Devenk. He's a technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Check out more of his stories at uh, Bloomberg.com. Stars at night are big and bright. Yeah, yeah. Deep in the heart of Texas. That's where our next guest usually is based, uh, San Antonio, Texas, to be exact, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York on this Monday. Jeannie Wyatt back with us, Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer at South Texas Money Management. They've got roughly $3.5 billion in assets under management. And uh, she's interested in both value and growth stocks. Uh, and that includes shares of a grocery chain that some might say is in the discount aisle. And she also likes one of the big banks. So we're going to get to it. Nice to have you back with us. Thank you. It's nice to be here again. When you watch what's going on in Washington in terms of the tax overhaul, what is the most important aspects of this to your clients and to what you do for them? Well, I think we've already seen probably the most important aspect, and that is growing, growing conviction that there will be lower corporate tax rates, which is great for corporate earnings, obviously, and company margins, and um, likely they're buying back more more stock and paying higher dividends with offshore cash. So it's been... Um, you know, widely anticipated and obviously now growing conviction that this is a done deal for corporations, a clear benefit for so corporate So yoo-hoo, earnings. it's a good thing to be a corporation right now. That's right. That's right. Um, so we, we've actually anticipated this to happen even prior to the presidential election. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this long-running bull market really started in earnest after Trump was elected the day after the election, but we felt that even before that election outcome, this was highly likely because it was the low-hanging fruit. Both parties, both both candidates in the in the election, were in support of lower corporate tax rates. We needed to get this for the United States to be competitive globally, and indeed, it looks like we will get it. Now, there are some confusing, some confusing provisions right now um, as a result of the Senate proposed bill. And some of those, you know, now hopefully as they negotiate the terms between the House and the Senate, some of those surprising wrinkles will be worked out because some of them could have some unintended consequences. But generally, we think this will still benefit corporations. But we have also been advising clients, do not delay your own tax decisions in 17 until 18, because individuals are not likely to get a break 
of any kind, capital gains, income tax rates, and indeed that looks like the likely outcome because the benefits to corporations have to be paid for and and they are being paid for by not giving individuals a tax rate. In fact, in some ways, this proposed bill could be expensive for individuals uh, not being able to uh, deduct deduct um, state and local income taxes, property taxes, excuse me, property taxes. Or capped. Ca- capped. Um, and, you know, mortgage. Cap- mortgage capped to $10,000. Exactly. Uh, mortgage rates, you know, limited in terms of deductibility, even nonprofit contributions. Uh, you know, it, it seems quite feasible that fewer and fewer individuals will want to itemize, and that could that could lower the receipts to nonprofits from individuals because of not as attractive tax tax benefits. So. It's happening. So I guess what I wonder, I just want to break in, right, Corey? We talk about, you know, trickle-down economics, you know, give companies a break and they're going to spend on capital expenditures. They're going to pay more workers. Obviously, we're not going to necessarily see it because everybody keeps saying, nope, they're going to do buybacks and they're going to do raising their dividends. So will this ultimately mean less money in the pocketbook of many individuals here in the United States of America? And by that, then there's going to be less personal consumption. That could be short-term. Short-term, yes, in my view, the outcome. Uh, And it is, I mean, you know, we're trusting that Laffer Curve economics works, that cutting... Trickle down. Trickle down. But it doesn't. Well, for companies, it will eventually, but it's going to be a slower process. When individuals when individuals get tax benefit, they react to it quickly. Same with a, a negative tax outcome. They will adjust quickly. So in my view, again, near term, yeah. this could be a drag on the economy. Near term, individuals that can act more quickly and support the economy with a consumption, uh, investing in homes. You know, housing has been one of our strongest industries. Well, I, I want to ask US about that. Economy. So, with this notion that uh, that uh, it's going to be harder to expense uh, the cost of a second home or a bigger first home. That's got to affect uh, home sales. Oh, no, no question. Especially uh, higher priced homes, second homes, as you you, you say. Higher priced homes. There's and, no homes anywhere but Texas. Right, well, no, I, <laughs> even Texas has some pretty high priced home markets. So those high priced homes, those high cost right. neighborhoods and jurisdictions around the country, it makes it more expensive and could put downward pressure. Now, Wait, wait, so you avoid wait. those in your portfolio? Well, the one exception, uh, the one exception is to the housing outlook, is that there are millions of millennials that are forming households. So the lower, the lower priced homes under five hundred thousand. Right now, there is very good demand there. Very good demand, and that demographic, under the, again the tax proposals. 
uh, still right. has a benefit. Well, time will tell. Uh, we just got 30 seconds, and I think we'd be remiss to not throw one of the names that you're interested in, in and that includes Kroger, which has been beaten up because of Absolutely. Amazon getting to Whole Foods. We just have about 20 seconds. Which okay. It's a, gro- it's a value, it's a value stock. Right. Kroger is trading at a big discount to the Staples, mm-hmm. the Staples Group, which is you know very high, very high premium, and is actually corrected, uh, pulled back quite a bit because of the Whole Foods. Uh, acquisition by Amazon. So we think now it may be a, a longer term workout, but we, with the last earnings reports, margins are actually holding in there. Got and it. we're Finally. excited about that. We got to run. Jeannie, thank you so much. Jeannie Wyatt, CEO, CIO at South Texas Money Management, based in San Antonio. Who takes every kind of people? I love. Love this story, and you'll find it in our top tech menu on the Bloomberg Today. Researchers fighting gender and racial bias in artificial intelligence. It's a Bloomberg exclusive, and our technology reporter at Bloomberg News, Dina Bass, wrote the story. She joins us on the phone from Seattle. Dina, nice to have you here with uh, Corey and myself. Tell us about what's going on here when it comes to AI and gender and racial bias. Sure. So, Carol, as you and I have talked about in the past, we've been making, uh, AI researchers have been making a lot of progress on uh, techniques in the last few years. But as they've been doing that, one of the things that they've discovered is that some of the uh, systems and algorithms have some significant uh, blind spots. They treat women um, and people of color in ways that are discriminatory. Sometimes they're downright dangerous. Uh, There was a very kind of uh, ProPublica report that came out a year ago that found that a computer program that's widely used to uh, determine sentencing and, uh, you know, jail, uh, parole, things like that, actually discriminated against people of color. So, you know, a number of researchers in the field now are trying to work on how to unravel that and how to, how to mitigate it. So I, I don't believe that, uh, that bias is a natural outcome of, of either math or society. So how do computers end up, how does artificial intelligence end up so stupid? Uh, how does it end up so – is it because the input is – do we have mostly male uh, people teaching these machines how to think and it comes out, out as, an, as, a, as an outcome, uh, uh, even in a, in a, a, a refined uh, piece of their, their uh, experience? And white males at that. Sure. I, there's a lot of different reasons. I think, you know, one of the, the things that people will tell you in this field is, you know, you with the data that you use to train these systems, you have an issue of garbage in, garbage out. If the data is incomplete or is biased in and of itself, and much of our data is either for historical reasons or uh, you mentioned, you know, who's programming it, then the result you get out of the, uh, out of the algorithm will be biased. So take sentencing data, for example. If you look at historical data on, on you know, criminal enforcement in this country, you know, in many ways, it's not exactly uh, fair um, to, to many different races, and so that might be part of it. And then there's just incomplete data. And one of the things one of the researchers found was that if the data was biased, in some cases, the algorithm actually made it worse. So if you had, you know, more pictures of women cooking than men cooking, that was already a, a bias um, there. But when they ran those pictures through, a, through an algorithm, the algorithm was more likely to tell you that the person in the photo cooking was a woman than even uh, the original data set showed. Um, so it's, more like, so it's yeah. more like the, the computer takes all these inputs and, and refines them into the sort of the, the, the most basic essence of what they are. It's like taking a chicken stock and making it into a demi-gloss. It's going to have the, <laughs> the richest, most intense uh, flavors. 
So yeah, the well, this is, there's a lot of different levels at which the bias is introduced. Either the data is incomplete or there's a problem in the algorithm. Some of these algorithms are, you know, are learning algorithms, so they're learning from the user. So if the user themselves uh, has you know, some sort of bias or is more likely to hire a male computer engineer, that, that feedback loop goes, can go back into the algorithm and teach the algorithm that what the, the person using the hiring system wants is a male engineer. So that can be a problem. And one of the other challenges here is a lot of these algorithms are black box. They don't, we put in data, we get out an answer, and we don't necessarily know exactly how that answer was reached. And that can be a real problem for, for people who are discriminated against by these algorithms. Say, again, in a sentencing example, you, you, you can't appeal if you don't know why the conclusion was reached. It's not easy to eliminate this, right? This is going to take some time to figure out. Yeah, look, I think one of the encouraging things is some of the, the brightest minds in the AI field are working on this at Google, at Microsoft, at the University of Washington, at Stanford. But there are a number, this is not one problem, there are a number of different reasons and problems that are causing this, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a couple of years to unravel. Can I also ask you, I mean, longer. I just, I think about the online, you know, social media universe, whether it's Facebook or Google, I mean, they can actually um, capitalize on biases, can they not, in terms of, you know, channeling news stories and stuff and things that might be interested to certain things, certain, certain right, races, I, I, certain groups, certain whatever. And I, yes, and I, I think that's why people are concerned. Yeah. You know, sentencing is an obvious reason to be concerned. But the other reason is many of these things are used for targeting. Many of these things are used to decide who gets a loan, who gets hired. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely well, we a we know that, Tina, I keep, I keep mansplaining and interrupting. I apologize. Uh, but it, we know, for example, now that Russians were targeting people who had expressed bias in a certain way. This would make that easier. This would make it easier for... I don't know the KKK to get their message out or something. Uh, that I haven't I haven't seen any work on. I, I see see where you're going with that, but I, I think there's a lot of reasons that this is concerning for people. I think yeah. there's a concern that this is impacting decisions. There's a concern that this is reinforcing people's biases. So if yeah. you think more women are let fewer women are engineers, maybe this reinforces this. And you know some of the research is around filling in the missing spots in the data that we don't even realize is missing. Some of the research is in, you know, unwinding these correlations that are biased, uh, right. you know, to teach the, make sure the data understands that, you know, women can be uh, computer engineers as well. Right. Uh, it's a good thing it's on everybody's radar that uh, hopefully we'll, we'll figure this one out. Dina, thank you. Dina Bass, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone in Seattle. Check her out on Twitter at Dina Bass. Check out her stories including this one on gender and racial bias in artificial intelligence. Just go to Bloomberg.com. Well, it's time for that drive to the close. Alan Zaffron joins us right now, Senior Managing Director, First Republic Investment Management. Uh, and uh, Alan, so much to talk to you about. But I've got to ask you, given what you do dealing with sort of wealth planning for people and uh, people who structured uh, their careers, if not their, their their income streams around the notion of being tax efficient, a lot of that's getting thrown out with the with with bathwater today. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to watch. Great to talk with you today, Corey. By the way, it was ironic you threw out the Beatles there. They, as you know, came out with the song The Tax Man because at one point they were subject to a 94% marginal tax rate. That's why they wrote the song The Tax Man. There's one for you, 19 for me. That's right. Man. That's true. So look, everybody here is obsessed with taxes. There's no greater place than our wonderful state of California with our 13.3% state tax income rate on the highest ordinary income individual. So... 
Yeah, everyone's obsessed with it. The reality is times have been pretty darn good, at least if you've been a stock owner. I don't know if they've been good if you've been an income wage earner in the middle of America. And so at the end of the day, this bill, let's keep our eyes on the ball. This is a political bill with economic consequences. It's not an economic bill with political consequences. What are the economic consequences you're concerned about, Alan? Well, the economic consequences are I think it has a modest economic impact on GDP growth, but I'm not sure it's sustainably convincing uh, significant economic growth. So when you look out five years from now, you've got a higher deficit. I'm not sure you got a lot for what you bargained for. You have to really believe in this trickle-down economics to think that U.S. GDP growth is really going to meaningfully change from the provisions of this plan. I don't really believe they're going to that dramatic. So short-term bump for stocks, because we'll, we'll, we'll see uh, an EPS growth, a one-time growth in EPS, but maybe not an economic benefit. And because a lot of people are going to be paying, a lot of people in the big, most populous places of the country are going to end up paying a lot higher taxes at the end of the day. There'll be less money to fuel the economy. Well, I think that that's absolutely part of it. There's clearly winners and losers in this uh, whole dynamic. To the extent you're an AMT payer and you have a large estate and you run a non-service pass-through, you win. If you're a high-income W-2 earner, you're sitting in a a high state tax like California, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, if you have a large mortgage, and if you happen to have a service business like a lawyer or a wealth manager, you lose. So there's winners and there's losers. But you're, you're, you're pointing to something that gets back to basic economics, which is the following. Our economy only grows in two ways. You either add more workers, you make them more productive. Right. And the challenge is this. There's only a handful of people per year who are going into the workplace because of an aging population. Well, here's what's really happened. If you go back since 2010, there have been 17 million jobs created in America. 15 of those 17 million have been in low productive low productivity service sector jobs. So I'm talking about the leisure industry, food services, retail. Only 2 million out of the 17 million is going into productive manufacturing businesses. And if you look at the core of this business plan, it's not getting to the point. It's not driving business in a way that we're getting more significant manufacturing high productivity jobs into our economy. And therefore, our economy just can't grow that fast. Um. I had a question and I lost it. Um, You know what's interesting too? I I think it was Pim Fox who kind of brought it up with us um, saying that why do we need, why do corporations need such a huge tax cut considering that they're doing pretty well. They're making lots of money and you could see it. Um, Just look at their share prices. Look at the the, the most recent uh, round of quarterly earnings uh, and revenue uh, results. I mean, why do they need it? Well, it doesn't hurt if you're, you know, remember, corporations are run for the benefit of shareholders. They're private enterprises. They're not run necessarily as, you know, socially uh, uh, meaningful businesses. In fact, you know, there's a big debate. You go back to 1970, Milton Friedman had a famous book or or, or paper, The Social Responsibility of Businesses to Mm -hmm. Increase Profits, and the theories would eventually trickle down to others. But at the end of the day, they're still accountable, not just to their employees and customers, but to their shareholders. And so if you look at past instances of one-time tax repatriations, like back in 2004, Microsoft had a, a big repatriation. They did a big one-time dividend. It didn't really meaningfully drive economic growth, per se. So uh, the, it, in my, I think a lot of that money comes back, just goes back in the form of dividends, higher dividends, more share buybacks. I don't know how much productivity-enhancing jobs are created from this plant. That's where I'm still confused, as, a, as an economist. 
Um, yeah, we'll see how that plays out ultimately. I mean, uh, when you talk about the winners, I, I think uh, it's it's interesting, you know, this notion that companies might reinvest. What's your take when you're trying to guide investors towards what they might do uh, to take advantage of uh, new winners and losers? Or avoid the losers well, and take advantage it, of the winners? It, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's it's hard to play the sector game. If you're, you're playing the sectors, you look right now in the short-run trade is all the high-tax sectors, the retail sectors, the capital-intensive businesses, multinationals. Those respective losers are those that benefit less from a low corporate tax rate. The technology industry, the pharmacy industry, clearly the real estate industry gets hurt, gets hurt and the insurance companies get hurt. So there are, you can identify that, but that's kind of a short-term snap. Um, if you look at the rotation that's gone on the last week out of technology and into other areas like telecommunications, utilities, I think those are short-term trades, and part of that is give back. If you look year-to-date, the tech sector's up 37%. The telecom sector's down 11%. So part of this is just re- this is just an excuse to rebalance. I think if you're really a long-term investor, I don't think you should get caught up on the nuances of the winners and losers on this tax rate. I think you still have to say, I'm going to invest in enduring yeah. businesses for the long run. That's what Warren Buffett would say, too. I'm just guessing. Alan Zafrin, Senior Managing Director, Wealth Manager at First Republic Investment Management. $50.3 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my you move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Time for a check on your Movers and Shakers on this Monday afternoon. Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Philadelphia Stock uh, Exchange Semiconductor Index. I'm talking about the socks. The socks. The socks. Uh, down 2.5% today. What's it doing this year? It's still up about 35%, but taking a little bit of a hit today. Uh, frantic rotation in the equity market once again sent shipmakers reeling, handling bulls. Their fifth drop in six days as investors reallocated into stocks seen as more likely to benefit from a tax overhaul. So again, we just you know talked about this with Alan Zafran but, and other guests. You know Certainly that is uh, what investors are watching pretty closely, how tax overhaul might impact various uh, industries and ultimately then uh, those publicly held companies that uh, work within those industries. So losses steepest at NVIDIA. Uh, that's the graphics processor whose 2017 advance exceeded 100% as recently as November 24th. Micron Technology up 16-fold since the bull market began. Semiconductor stocks have suffered amid a broader sell-off in the tech industry, which at times this year has been up twice as much as any other group. And I'm just looking among the most uh, active and biggest movers. AMD is the fourth biggest decliner in the S&P 500. That stock alone uh, down about 6.5%, Corey. Yeah, NVIDIA. Uh, you mentioned NVIDIA. I was, mm-hmm. I was actually going to mention that one as, as sure. well as AMD. Uh, but that uh, NVIDIA down 14% in just the last call it week and a half. So a big slide in that stock. And one of the reasons uh, uh, not widely uh, known outside of the semiconductor sector is w- the fact that AMD and uh, NVIDIA, and I mentioned on the show briefly last week, both had results driven by Bitcoin. Bitcoin miners uh, wanted to use AMD chips when they were creating special PCs to create Bitcoins. Uh, there was a, a limited supply of those AMD 
chips. So they were turning to AMD, uh, to NVIDIA chips, which were especially made for graphic processors. But at, a, at the right price, uh, that looked like something that would actually be worthwhile uh, for uh, Bitcoin miners if Bitcoin prices were high enough. And sure enough, you saw a rising revenues uh, for AMD and for uh, NVIDIA, uh, uh, driven by Bitcoin sales, among other things. But some changes in the uh, some technical changes in the way that Bitcoin is created meant that uh, going forward, AMD and NVIDIA will not have that as a driver. And I think Wall Street is starting to figure that out a little bit and recognize that they need to take a little off there because uh, the revenue driver of recent uh, years is not going to be there. Let's talk about O'Reilly Automotive. O'Reilly Auto. Uh, that is your second biggest gainer in the S&P 500. That stock is up 6.8% uh, in today's session. Oops, my finger's not fast enough. Uh, up uh, 6.8%, up almost 16 bucks, Corey, to $250.39 a share. Uh, stock is, though, still down about 10% in uh, 2017. Moffat Nathanson uh, initiating coverage of O'Reilly Automotive with a recommendation of buy. Overall, O'Reilly had 17 buy recommendation, 10 holds, zero sells. Previously, uh, analysts raised their consensus one-year target price for the stock by 2.9% in the past three months. It's been a long time since I owned shares of General Cable, mm -hmm. but boy, it just kills me when I see a stock that I owned a long time ago go way up when I don't own it anymore. I'm not in that business anymore buying and selling stocks, but General Cable uh, acquired by a company called Prismian SPA. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a $3 billion takeover. Uh, Prismian, uh, the Milan-based company, uh, is going to pay $30 of cash for General Cable. General Cable, uh, based in Kentucky, they make, you want to guess? Uh, I'm sorry, cables? General Cable makes cables, yeah. <laughs> uh, fiber optic wire and cable products, aluminum, copper, uh, and the like. The uh, they operate is. all over the Went world that doing one. that. Yes. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's actually a really interesting company, uh, uh, and, and it doesn't tend to get those fantastic valuations. Nonetheless, they'd seen revenue sliding the last three years, uh, and uh, the stock uh, not having a great run of things going from about 20 to 22, but all of a sudden up 35% uh, on the day on this takeover offer. That must hurt you, huh? Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little. Just a little bit. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. And that would be Globus Medical, Corey. It's a maker of medical devices for people with spinal disorders. You know, the company was founded back in 2003, and uh, a co-founder, uh, David Paul, he controls the company even now. He had been CEO from its founding until he stepped down in August, and he's still chairman. Uh, Paul owns all of Globus Medical's Class B shares, which have 10 votes each. The company also has Class A shares with one vote apiece, and Class A has traded publicly since August 2012. The ticker is GMED. Globus Medical shares have surged in the past month. The rally started after third quarter results were released on November 8th and gained momentum after BTIG raised its price estimate above those of other Wall Street firms on November 20th. Now, BTIG set a target of $42. Today, you got a higher number out of Wells Fargo. Uh, they raised their Globus Medical rating to the equivalent of buy from hold, and uh, analyst Lawrence Beagleson lifted his 12-month estimate for the stock by 39% to $46. So uh, he's now the highest among eight analysts in a Bloomberg survey. And the call sent Globus Medical shares to a record. Uh, they closed at $40.18 for a gain of 6.8%. Drama. Drama. 
Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, it's been uh, quite yeah. the month. Uh, indeed, Globus has, has been an interesting company to watch for some time, and this move uh, values what a lot of people expected. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 